So, back to work. Uh, so I'm going to go through uh, chapter 9, and uh, which you're all supposed to have read. And we're going to talk about uh, the sectarian, sectarian groups. We talked about the word sectarian, so I won't do that again. That's my, one of my stump speeches, but. So, um, one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that uh, the three gunas, we've, we've talked about that many times, the different material qualities, and in sattva, sattva's goodness, and uh, generally associated with the cosmic maintenance, not only cosmic maintenance, but also uh, in one's own individual life, the tendency to preserve and to maintain things, associated with goodness, and uh, the god who is in charge of cosmic maintenance is Vishnu. And so Vishnu has always been associated with this quality of goodness. In fact, he's called the Sattvika Devata, the, the deity of goodness. And um, Raja's passion associated with creation, if you think about it, uh, to really create something, to... to change things the way they... Well, I shouldn't use the word change today because it's the last day of the campaign, but... Don't get sectarian, but... But to... to re, the act of creation... Of course, everybody claims to be changing, but... The act of creation is passionate. And Brahma, who creates... Is said to be the creator of the universe associated with this mode, and then Tamas, ignorance, destruction. Destructive energy has always been associated with Shiva. And so, uh, just to put things within a historical framework, as we've talked about many times, uh, as Vedic religion encountered different challenges and then reinvented itself in different ways, and ultimately, by, let's say, certainly by about 1,500 years ago, and even earlier, the, uh, the predominant, predominant way of being religious in India became the bhakti movements, devotional movements, which were focused on three different deities, uh, Vishnu, Shiva, and Shakti, the goddess. Anyway, so you all know that. We're going to talk about that. Um, one thing I want to uh, look at today is to quote from the beginning of this chapter, there were trends to amalgamate minor cults along the rubric of a particular all-encompassing divine figure. The idea is that, um, well, here's a way to look at it. As long as, historically, as long as the Brahmins, or, or the, so to speak, the leaders of Indian religion, were not doing devotion, they were doing other things. They were either doing, let's say, Vedic rituals on one side, or they were engaged in the Upanishad activities, philosophizing, theologizing, all that mystical, philosophical stuff. Buddhists were doing their things, the Jainas were doing their things. And so in a sense, because all the sort of major league players were not really doing devotion at a certain point, and because people are inclined, people in general, just the people, are very much inclined to adore a particular figure, to seek the protection, the protection of a god or goddess, for themselves, for their families, for their children, and so on and so forth. 
because it's just sort of natural that human beings, human beings, and, and when there's nothing really to go around religiously, people settle for uh, football players or even, you know, highly drugged musicians and so on. So the idea is that people sort of take what they can get. But there's this very strong tendency to idolize, to, um, to worship. And it either it manifests itself religiously, it may manifest itself in a, in a secular way, directed towards, quote-unquote, celebrities. And uh, anyway, that's a whole topic, so celebrities. But, so anyway, as long as the major league players in this whole Indian picture were doing other things, in the villages, on the farms, in the little towns, quote-unquote, the people just tended to have their own little local gods and goddesses. And they've always been there. In, in fact, the book mentions that in the Harappan civilization, the Indus Valley civilization, they found all these terracotta figures, uh, figurines of, um, well, female figures. So that's something people have always done. People always have their idols. They always devote themselves. So they always seek protection and safety from someone, some higher power, yes? Didn't Buddhism have some of these elements like towards the end and, and, and the Vedic hymns kind of seem to idolize the different gods? So, right. So okay, good. We'll bring that in. Well, as far as Buddhism, well, first of all, let's start with the Vedic part. The Vedic hymns certainly are directed to certain gods, certain gods such as Agni, the god of fire, Varuna, the god of the seas, uh, Vishnu, and especially Indra, the god of rain and thunder, and so on. For some reason, Indra never, after the Vedic period, he, he really, uh, his radiance went way down. In turn, and he, he didn't really make it in the Hindu period as a god for whom people built temples and engaged in puja and so on and so forth. As far as Buddhism, it started out with the no-god program, but then the Hindu side just sort of creeped back in. So that was just kind of a, uh, the Hindu thing coming back in. If the Hindus hadn't really reached the point of worshipping gods, like... No, I didn't say they hadn't worshipped Let me make that more clear. It's not that they haven't worshipped gods. I remember the... Uh, if you look at the Mimansa people, the people that were kind of the, uh, the ritual gurus, they said the gods are there and you should worship them, but that's only a mechanical process. They're just paraphernalia like, like the cups that you used, you know, water cups or spoons for pouring butter into fire and so on. The gods really aren't that important. There definitely isn't the Greek Veda. There's a time there are certain gods to whom devotion is directed. But there's not that many of them. There's just, it's a relatively small number of people and they're associated with certain formal rituals. And even in the later Vedic period, the gods aren't that important anymore. They're just mechanical parts of the sacrifice. So there's always been worship. There's always been recognition of gods and goddesses. But to be more clear, I, I probably should be more clear, what I'm talking about is a tremendous proliferation at a local level of hundreds of gods and goddesses. So that's what I'm talking about. So uh, to be more clear, so that you could go, I mean, you know, you go 10 miles down the road and find a new set of gods and goddesses and little village deities and so on and so forth, and still in India among certain class of people. So in fact, they talk about the high tradition, the low tradition. There, there was the formal Vedic tradition with, with these very... Um, even majestic and, and uh, solemn rituals and highly trained, sophisticated Brahmin ritualists and so on, and philosophy behind it. So there's this high, sophisticated worship 
but then at, at, on the ground in villages and farms, it's all over India. And up until actually not very many years ago, people in India did live simply in villages and farms up until very recently. And so you have this tremendous proliferation of all kinds of just local gods and goddesses. And so the point I want to make is that with the rise of the Bhakti movement, uh, it's almost like what happened in American capitalism. You know, you have all these different companies and then like the big fish swallowing the smaller fish and a bigger <laughs> fish swallows that, swallows that one. All these, you know, like corporate mergers and amalgamations. So and within, before too long, we probably have like maybe three airlines left in America <laughs> and no steel companies. But anyway, so but it's like this amalgamation. You could think of it as, if you think of communities, villages in a sense are corporations, not in the sense that they're, you know, business corporations, but they're groups of people that have rules and structures and hierarchies and so on. And so India, when, when bhakti becomes very important, and so to speak, the big shots, the brahmins and the kings, when important people start taking to bhakti, and there's a lot of, it's suddenly a major thing involving a lot of power and cultural influence, then you have this amalgamating tendency. So that it's not just hundreds and thousands of local little gods and goddesses, but the larger figures start assimilating the smaller ones. So that uh, you end up at the end, in terms of mainstream Hinduism, with basically three great figures, Vishnu, Shiva, and Brahma. And even to this day, in villages, in, among certain classes of people, you'll find many gods and goddesses, but in terms of the dominant traditions, that get the big funding, that build the big temples, that have the, you know, the, the uh, more prestigious Brahmins associated with them. For example, in America, there are, you could say there's innumerable little political organizations, but there are two major parties, what Ralph Nader always calls the duopoly. And uh, so even though there are innumerable smaller political parties, hey, we're going to have some... Uh, musical accompaniment today. <laughs> Even though there are innumerable smaller political uh, groups, there are basically two parties. So in a sense, Hinduism became a three-party system, if you want to think of it that way. <laughs> or a, a two-and-a-half-party system. So that's, that's just like the basic history. Any questions on that? Which one's McCain? I'm going to match all the candidates to different deities now. Yes. Well, that's the, thank you for saying it. That, that's another important point because the way textbooks tend to describe it, there were people that say worshipping, say, in the Vaishnav side, Vasudev or Narayan or Bhagavan, they became the Bhagavats or Krishna. And then they just, it's almost like a corporate merger where, okay, you know, we're going to buy your deity, we'll give you so many stock options. <laughs> so the book portrays it as a, um, hey, that's, a, that's an interesting little deity you got there. You want to, you know, maybe we'll buy you and then you can, we'll let Krishna be also Vasudev and we'll do all these like religious mergers. And so that's one way to look at it. But uh, another way to look at it would be that, um, well, from the point of view that, of people that take this seriously, that believe there's actually that these deities correspond to something in the real world, that there really are gods and goddesses, and so uh, these different names and these different descriptions actually correspond to real things in the world, namely great personalities, 
then uh, you could say that um, it gets back to these three modes of nature. So that you could say people, for example, here's a, let's say, in-house, from within the tradition, explanation of what was going on. Let's say in the mode of goodness, certain people are predominantly virtuous. They see life as principally meant for seeking wisdom. And uh, they tend to be peaceful. They tend to be nonviolent because they recognize in the mode of... These are all descriptions from things like the Bhagavad Gita and other texts. That in the mode of goodness, in sattva, for example, in the Gita, chapter 18, you see that all living things are one. That people, uh, souls may be in different species, different kinds of bodies, rich or poor, different races, ethnicities, nationalities, different religions. But ultimately, it's all life. It's all, every, everyone is just a soul in a different body. And therefore, there's this unity of all life. In fact, in this chapter, it mentions the Gita tends to be inclusive inclusive, tolerant text. So, therefore, if you get a bunch of people, let's say, who are in this particular quality of goodness, and in different regions of India, where they speak different languages, and have different histories, they worship that figure under different names, and as people talk to each other, they realize we're really worshiping the same God. I mean, imagine, it's, even nowadays in America, there tend to be people who are, uh, let's say, tend to be more on this platform, who say, okay, maybe I'm a Christian, but uh, Jews are worshipping the same God, or, or Muslims are worshipping the same God, or, or whatever. In other words, the tendency to see that there's one God being worshipped in different ways. So it's something which, even in America, there, there's actually probably a very significant number of people that see it that way as opposed to saying that I'm worshiping the living God, you're worshiping the dead God, and uh, this is a true religion, you have the false religion, and all that stuff. And, and there is really a cultural divide in America. There are some people that insist that they have the only true religion, and other people are just worshiping a figment of their imagination, or even worse, they're worshiping some evil power in the universe. And that evil power is so sneaky that it actually... Uh, induces his or her followers to be good people and to actually try to love God, which is all a trick. <laughs> it shows how, how deceitful the devil can be. So, so there are certain people that take a, whatever religion they're in, take a fanatical approach, and other people that take a more inclusive approach. That there's one God being worshipped or conceived in different ways. And in a sense, in India also, uh, you have this strong idea that there's ultimately one truth. Or there may be, for example, a, a family of divine figures. There may be a supreme god. However, there may be demigods, or there may be empowered beings in the universe who serve God in different ways. And so the names, like a rose is a rose is a rose. So that there's this... From within the Hindu tradition, you could describe it as a tendency to recognize that you're really worshipping the same divine power that I am. Or you're really doing the same thing that I am. We may have different names. For example, in Maharashtra, one thing mentioned in the text, there's a very popular deity named Vitova in uh, Pune. Isn't it? Or is, no, is it? What? Pandarpur. Pandarpur, right, Pandarpur. In the same state, Maharashtra. And at a certain point, the, the worshippers there felt that, well, actually we're worshipping Vishnu, or a form of Krishna. Or that's in West India, in Maharashtra. 
in East India, on the other side of the subcontinent, say in uh, Orissa, the state of Orissa in the famous temple of Jagannath, Puri. On the coast of Orissa, where you have this deity who comes to be understood or associated with Krishna, that it's actually a deity of Krishna, and, and, and there's another deity that's Krishna's brother, Balaram, and, and the lady in the center is, is taken to be Krishna's sister, Subhadra. So, our, from within the Hindu tradition, people think these are real people, these deities. This is not just mythology. That actually different communities are discovering that we're worshipping the same person. Or, you could argue also that different communities simply uh, chose different names. They, they preferred to call the same god different names. But ultimately, as things began to amalgamate, they recognized that we're, we're really worshipping the same god. Yes? But is this like open-mindedness about, say, one religion or many religions? Is this, isn't it water things down? Or like there's so many paths and they all lead to the same thing? And well, I, I suppose in terms of you know, one person's watering down is another person's open-mindedness. And it also depends on uh, how it's done, I suppose, how different, pe different people will react to different amalgamations in different ways. For example, some people feel that to recognize that Hindus, especially monotheistic Hindus, or Muslims, or, or Jews, whatever, are worshipping the same God, some people feel that's blasphemy and the betrayal of the true religion. Whereas many people feel that, no, that's just common sense. That's obviously what's going on. Now, in, in terms of watering things down, it, it, I suppose it depends on how far you go before some people would be alarmed, even if you say that anything... In other words, I suppose if you, if you transfer the power to the worshiper so that anything that you believe is God is God. I mean, let's think about that for a second. Let, let's take it all the way where anything that anyone claims is God, in fact, is God. Now, it's interesting because there's a sense, there's a sense in which that's true, according to the Bhagavad Gita. The sense in which it's true is, and that's the Vedanta sense. Remember, the Vedanta begins by saying, Atato Brahma Jigyasa, uh, uh, that we're searching for Brahman, and the Brahman of the Upanishads is everything. Shankara says there's nothing but Brahman. So according to Shankara, uh, everything that exists is the divine. And then the Bhagavad Gita modifies that and says everything that exists is the divine in the sense that it's the energy of the absolute. It's the emanation or the expansion of the power of the absolute. So that, for example, this building uh, is the energy of God. Krishna, there's one statement, I think, in chapter 7 of the Gita where Krishna says that Bhumi, Rapu, etc., that earth, water, air, fire are my external or material energies, and there's a higher energy, which is the living conscious soul. So in that sense, all of matter and all, and all souls are simply energies of God, and therefore you have Krishna saying in the Gita, in that same chapter, that after many births, one who actually becomes enlightened sees Vasudeva Sarvam, that Krishna or God is everything. And Arjuna, in chapter 11, uh, says to Krishna that uh, Sarvam Samatnoshi, that you encompass everything, speaking to Krishna, you encompass everything, Sanatnoshi is the verb, verb, Tatosi Sarva, in that sense you are everything. So, uh, 
So from that point of view, in fact, Krishna also says in, in chapter 7, I think chapter 7 of the Gita, that um, whatever you worship, you remember, you know, yod, yod, yang, yang, tanu, bhakta, whoever undertakes to worship whatever form, is what he says, tanu, or uh, Krishna says that I make that person's faith strong and actually give them, grant them their wishes. So there's a sense in which everything that exists is part of God, but then again you go to the next point where you say, well, but to say that something is an expansion of God is not to say that it's God. For example, uh, you could take a piece of chalk and that's not really, you could say it's the energy of God, but it's, it's not really a deity. I mean, so, I mean, what if someone did that? What if someone actually said that I believe that God has incarnated it in the form of this chalk? And this is now my deity. And so we're going to build a temple for this piece of chalk. And, uh, and maybe draw a little face on it. <laughs> I mean, actually, in India, there is a form of worship called Shila. It's not so far fetched. It's called Shila worship. Shila means stone, where stones are taken from a certain river, which is considered to be very special. Yeah, it's called Shalagram, Shilas. And then sort of eyes, a face, a face is painted on these stones and it's accepted to be an incarnation, an incarnation of Krishna. Like a pet rock. What? Like a pet rock. Pet rock, a pet deity rock. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, ultimately, well, I'll tell you how, how the, uh, say, the Gita would see this. The Gita would see this, that, um, the Bhagavad Gita, that ultimately there are forms of God. The God is a real thing that has actually that has personal forms. And even in the Shiva side of it, or they would say that Shiva has, let's say, a particular form. And that that form actually has to be worshipped. So the real persons. For example, I mean, take yourself. I mean, everyone. Everyone now, take yourself. I mean, consider yourself. In the sense of consider yourself that um, you have energy. You have kinetic energy. There's all kinds of chemical stuff. It's in your body. There's all kinds of energies in your body. If you accept yourself as a spiritual being, if you accept yourself as a soul, then you have your, own, you have your spiritual energy. We could talk about consciousness as an energy. And so even though you have various... You, you have consciousness as an energy, you have emotional energy and intellectual energy and cognitive energy, and there's the body, all the energies in the body, still... Ultimately, you're a person. And from the theistic side, generally, whether it's, I mean, any religion, really, from the theistic side, you're really a person. It's not an illusion. The, the, the fact that this is all the Vedanta debate, and of course, Buddhism, the, the feeling you have that I'm a person, it's, this is me, is real. You really are a person. Uh, and even an eternal person. And therefore, even though you have so many energies, even though you have so many energies, your, your, your hair and nails are growing, all kinds of stuff going on in your body, you have consciousness, still, you're a person. You're a person, and you're a whole person, and if someone, let's say, just sees you as a body, let's say someone is lusting after your body, uh, and doesn't really care about you as a person, there's a sense in which that person is not really getting it, that it's you, you are a whole person. You are the center of your own consciousness. And so, from the devotional point of view, saying that everything is God, a type of pantheism, uh, may miss the point that there's really a person who is God. And of course, this gets into another topic in this chapter. 
the fact that uh, the whole notion of avatars, that God can expand, uh, the chapter was mentioned, which I'm sure you all know, that um, there's a type of literature called Agama literature, tantric, devotional literature, which um, there's a viewha, there, there's a whole viewha theory. Viewha means sort of like an alignment, expansion, where there's, a, there's an original form of God, and then God expands into other forms. In this case, and generally, the most sophisticated theology in this area of avatar and view is in the Vaishnava side. So there's, for example, an original form, whether you take it as Vishnu or Krishna, and then expansions such as Sankarshana, Pradyumna, Aniruddha, Vasudeva, and so on. And there's all these different... But here's the idea that there's one God, there's only one God, but that one God can appear in innumerable forms, and yet not in any form. In other words... To say that God has the power to appear in many forms is not to say that any form is God. I mean, take yourself, for example. You have the right, according to law, to dress in any, let's say, reasonably decent way. There are limits, you know, of legality. But let's say you can dress yourself, you can dye your hair any color, or cut your hair, or shape your hair as you like. You can wear these kinds of clothes, you can come in a costume so that, you know, life is just a continuous Halloween or something. <laughs> so even though, even though you have a right or, or you can reinvent your appearance in innumerable ways and dress or groom yourself in so many ways, it doesn't, it's still you. It's always you appearing in different ways. And it doesn't mean that anyone in, with, in any appearance is you. You are you and someone else is someone else. So even though God can appear in innumerable forms or avatars, it doesn't mean that any other, any per person or anything is God. That's the idea. Is that clear? A little bit of philosophy just after the weekend, but and so therefore, the people say Vaishnavas or the Shaivas, the Shaktas, they're very serious that this particular person is the supreme God. And, and this particular person may appear in different forms, but it doesn't mean every form of every other deity is necessarily God. Now, ironically, if you don't take personal forms of God that seriously, and if you think that ultimately God is not personal, as we found in Shankara, then uh, all the different forms of God are kind of on the same level because at the end of the day, none of them are God. Remember, Shankara said it's a delusion. The idea of an Ishwara, of a personal God, is a delusion. But it's a very practical delusion. For example, the delusion of the tooth fairy. Maybe a practical delusion because it helps children to get over the trauma of losing their teeth. They see it as a positive experience. Oh boy, I can't wait for my tooth to fall out. And so you can see how the tooth fairy is a very practical, positive, helpful illusion. For Santa Claus, I, mean, I can remember being very, very young and being told that um, Santa Claus is coming that night, but if I went and looked at the chimney, fireplace, then uh, all my presents would turn to ashes. My parents told me that, obviously, so I wouldn't look and see them putting the presents there. <laughs> so somehow I woke up, like, in the middle of the night, and I, and I sort of wandered into the living room, and then I remembered that warning, and I looked, and I actually, you know, kids, very, very little, I actually thought that all, my, all the gifts had turned to ashes before my eyes, and then I ran back to bed. But, so there's, so there's, there's different... So there, there are 
there are different kinds of illusions which we, we consider to be positive and even healthy. And Shankar is basically saying that even Ishwar, a personal god, is one of those healthy, helpful illusions. Wouldn't you say that the idea of God in general is a healthy illusion to get over the fear of death? Uh, well, Krishna, there's a very interesting verse in the Gita uh, where Krishna says that one who has intelligence in sattva good, because intelligence in goodness is clear and lucid, and passion is kind of murky and in ignorance is sort of non-existent. So what Krishna says is that, I'll show you the text words, he says there, real, there is real fear, paya, uh, or danger, and then abhaya, which is non-danger, or something, something which one should not fear. What Krishna says is that when your intelligence is lucid, you will know the difference between what is actual danger and what is not really danger. Now imagine a reckless person that thinks that really uh, there's no problem to drink and drive. And all this propaganda about drinking and dri- about you shouldn't drink and drive is just an illusion because of some people that you know, don't have the existential toughness to face death. And there's nothing wrong with dying. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you know, dying in a fiery crash or being mutilated. You know, what's the problem? Whereas, I think more rational people would say, no, drinking and driving is actually dangerous. And to fear that is to be rational. And so to simply label every fear as somehow, you know, just an emotion, and that therefore we invent things. No. For example, the invention of seat belts or then shoulder belts, that was not simply a helpful illusion. It was a rational way to deal with a real problem. Or, for example, let's say uh, someone decides not to smoke because they don't want to possibly preempt their normal lifespan. And so someone could say, well, what's the problem? So if there, if there really is a way to overcome death, if death really does just apply to the body, if it's the body that dies, and if there is an eternal soul that doesn't die, then to take reasonable steps to reach a spiritual level in which you connect with your own real self and uh, achieve the... Uh, a more permanent life is simply to act rationally and intelligently. And to uh, avoid spiritual life is to be irrational and reckless. Now, if there is no eternal soul, it's all the opposite. So, to say that, talk about eternal life is... Now, Krishna gives one example in the Gita, that uh, we have an experience in this life, a direct experience of being the same person throughout changes of the body. Krishna gives that as a suggestion that you can experience yourself as a non-material entity. Because, for example, let's say 15 years ago, I mean, you're over 15, I think. So, 15 years ago, when you were a young, very young lady, uh, it was still you. Obviously, your mind was different in many ways, your body was different in many ways, but it was still you. And therefore, in normal, if we do a little linguistic anthropology, uh, it is very common to say, I was five years old, I was three. We don't say that other person. And so therefore, we have this very powerful sensation, very powerful experience that it was me. It was me ten years ago, fifteen years ago, and yet the body is completely different. So there are different ways, of course, you can respond to this. But it's not obvious. It's not obvious that we are the body. 
I mean, imagine, for example, that someone, uh, let, let's say, you know, lets her hair grow long, and then someone thinks that, oh, you know, that person really looks beautiful with long hair and falls in love, and the person cuts the hair. I mean, you can cut your hair, but it's the same person. Even the skin. I mean, you, you can think that you're touching someone by shaking hands with them or embracing them or whatever. But within a few weeks, that person is going to redo their skin. And so does that mean that, that let's say, if you date a person two weeks later, you're going out with a different person because they're reskinned <laughs> or newly enskinned or whatever? So it's not at all obvious that we, in fact, are identical with our bodies. It's a, very, uh, it's a very serious issue. And you can easily problematize the idea that we are, in fact, material bodies. And that's why philosophers, as long as there has been philosophy, never mind religion, as long as there has been philosophy in the world, East or West, people have noticed the fact that there seems to be, that the person seems not to be the body. And some people have said the person is the body, but a lot of philosophers felt the person was not the body, including the early Western philosophers and Eastern philosophers. So to say that, so if we are, if, it, if it's the case, if it's the case that we are not simply the physical body but something different from or beyond the temporary dying body, then not to try to understand who I am and, and what are my real possibilities. What's the metaphysical menu here? What are my options? Where did I come from? Where am I going? To simply ignore all this with a, a type of bravado that, you know, no, I, I'm a realistic person and I just accept that I'm the body and I'm going to die, it seems to me is, uh, I mean, that's one way to go, but it's not, it's not obviously true and it's not even obviously philosophical. And there's a tendency on the part of certain people who are metaphysical materialists because to say that there's nothing but matter and consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the, body, of the body, is to take a philosophical position. It's not to be a realist, because that's begging the question. In fact, we experience the body through consciousness. We're conscious of the body. As Descartes pointed out, the only thing we really have immediate experience of is consciousness itself, which is not obviously a physical thing. Because if I say, take your consciousness, how much does it weigh? What color is it? What's the texture of it? There's no answer, because consciousness doesn't have any of those physical properties. So Descartes says, actually in opposition to empiricism, that our, the, the foundational experience, the epistemologically foundational experience, the most basic experience that we have, is not empirical, it's actually metaphysical. It's the experience of being conscious. There are certain parts of consciousness that are extremely affected should you damage the brain, though. So of course. Well, the emission of light, uh, the emission of electric light would be severely affected if I threw a rock at that fixture. But could I thereby conclude that light fixtures create electricity? And so it seems to me that the, the big uh, clueless point in the materialistic philosophers is they don't distinguish between something which conducts an energy and something which produces it. In fact, these light, light fixtures are conducting electricity. They're not creating it. And so if it's the case, if it's the case that the physical body conducts consciousness, 
then obviously if you smash the conductor or do something to the conductor, the transmission of that energy is affected. There are also cases, there was actually a guy born without a brain that was still conscious. And this is actually scientific. The guy was born without a brain. Without the entire brain? Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. And, and people, I mean, so people, yeah, so the relationship between the, the nervous system and consciousness is not very simple and obvious. It's something which has to be thought about. Parts of the brain that if you damage it, your relationship with morality is gone. True. I, I, I don't understand. Well, the relationship with morality is your, your impulse control. That can be. Yeah. But but I mean, okay, from the spiritual point of view, if it's the case, I, I don't have to be very hypothetical here in a public university. If it's the case, <laughs> if it's the case that um, in order to function purely on the level of consciousness. In other words, so you can be fully conscious without a physical body. If that is a state which is available to enlightened souls who actually transcend the body, and, and they can actually, their consciousness becomes so powerful it can function without a physical apparatus, then someone who is not in that state would in fact uh, be dependent on that. They, they, they would be dependent on the physical body for their consciousness. But to say that to say that, some, that, that, that A is dependent on B does not mean that A is always dependent on B, and that A, when it fully evolves or develops, cannot exist independently of B. That B. All we can say is that in a particular time and place, A is dependent on B in certain specific ways. But we can't really go beyond that. If you want to, if you want to take that specific dependence at a certain moment in time and generalize it and universalize it and say this is the ultimate final complete description of consciousness in the body that's a philosophical claim rather than an empirical one and so you'd have to defend that claim but anyway a little philosophy never hurt anybody <laughs> So any questions on these points? Back to the avatars. There is one thing I wanted to, uh, rather than just go over everything in the book and rather than just to harass poor Professor Rodriguez, um, I'll give him a day off. I did want to talk about something which was advertised for last lecture. I didn't get around to it. So uh, I thought, and that was the issue of transhistoricity which is uh, a big word you can use to impress your friends. Trans. <laughs> trans, of course, means beyond, or beyond or apart from. And, uh, and trans, of course, historical, you can understand. And in this devotional or bhakti, in these in the bhakti traditions, there is the, the idea that the presence of God, or the existence of God, uh, is available to us beyond material history. In other words, so you say in the biblical tradition, there's the idea of God being the author of history and participating in history, especially in the earlier sections of the Old Testament. And in Hinduism, there's a strong notion of the avatar, that God actually comes to this world or comes to other worlds and participates in human history or in the history of other beings and other, in other worlds. For example, there are many stories of uh, Vishnu, uh, or, or Shiva 
entering into the history of gods, where the gods have their own activities and, and Krishna or, or Shiva may incarnate there or incarnate him on earth. And there are descriptions of these incarnations. There, and in, the, in the Puranas you find in the Itihasa, for example, the Mahabharata. Mahabharata is about Krishna's coming to this world and taking part in history. So the Mahabharata is Itihasa's history, but it really revolves around the, the intervention of Krishna in human history. So, uh, even though there are these historical accounts, there's also the belief that uh, God is transcendental and therefore, in your mind, through meditation or through prayer, you can actually access God. You can actually, and, and so it's, it's a person with whom you can actually directly associate. You can have personal association with God. And what's interesting is that because time is cyclical, according to the Hindu notion, and the, and the avatars tend to be cyclical. They come and go at different times. Therefore, there tends to be a certain, how should I say, relaxed, casual attitude about certain details in history. I mean, consider, for example, the different way that, that a, a poet or an artist would deal, let's say, with the season. Now, now it's autumn or fall. So imagine how a meteorologist would deal with it as opposed to an artist who paints a picture. And so from the point of view of the artist or the poet, fall or autumn is something which comes again and again. And there are certain general characteristics. And what's important is to understand the spirit or the general principles of the season. Whereas for, let's say, a meteorologist that does weather for a living, mispredicts weather for a living, then it's actually the specific details. Like, here we are, it's 2008, what we care about is, is it going to rain tomorrow or not? What's the temperature going to be? And so on. Farmers are very concerned about the specific details of the, of the seasons, when the rain comes or stops, and so on. And so because there's this notion of cyclical time, and because there's the idea that ultimately God performs in different forms, uh, carries out these activities millions of times in different creation cycles, in different worlds, in different uniforms, uh, universes. <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's almost a relaxed, if you see the way that texts are translated, or that uh, they're transmitted from one generation to another, you can, you can kind of change some of the details. It doesn't matter that much. It's just like if you're painting a picture of an autumn season, let's say, of the, of the trees changing colors. It doesn't have to be exactly the way it was in a particular year, a particular day. It's just a general description of autumn. And there tends to be this sense that if you're describing, let's say, Nrsingha, that incarnation we talked about the other day, or, or Vish, uh, Vishnu coming or Krishna coming, the precise details aren't always that important. It's not like a scientific historiographer because God comes so many times and this is the spirit of what he does. And, you, and, and if you describe it in a slightly different way, then actually even that different description is still real because that pastime, that leela of God is actually taking place within your mind, spiritually. Because God can appear in the mind. And so there's a sense in which that's also a valid description of what God did. So there's a... Um, anyway, that, that's part of the spirit of it. So I wanted to mention. Any question on that? Yes. How would you connect that relaxed attitude to time to a relaxed attitude to place? And how um, holy places are so important? 
Well, I'll give you an example of that. In South India, there's some very important temples to that form of Narhari or Narsingha, the half-man, half-lion form that came to save his devotee, Prahlad. Now, according to the sacred text, that didn't take place on earth. Because Prahlad, the young boy, his father, uh, Hiranyakashipu, gold cushion, conquered Indra, took over the world of Indra, which is not the earth, and then Nrsingha came and saved his devotee. And yet in India, you can go, especially in South India, there's all these different places. What is it, Hovalam and different places where they'll say, this is where Nrsingha did this, this is where he did that. But actually, according to the scripture, it happened on another planet. And so in India, yeah, so there's this flexibility. Or another example of this is, let's say you go to Vrindavan, the place where Krishna grew up as a child. And it, it, as you let's say, walk around Govardhan Hill, the hill that Krishna lifted, or just go anywhere in that Vrindavan area, the local people will say, oh yes, here Krishna once uh, was hiding from his girlfriend Radharani, and then she came, and then Krishna said this, and Radha said that, or here this once happened. And it's, it's not mentioned in any sacred text, it's just, they're just stories that they tell. And many people actually take it, they take it very seriously. Well, and it's almost like, did this really happen in, earthly historical time, is it happening beyond the earth in a spiritual space? No one seems to care that much. And so what they do care about, though, is really it's about Krishna, or it's about Rama, and so on. So it's almost like, let's say you have someone you love, or a friend of yours, and you're telling a story about, yeah, five years ago we went to the mountains and this crazy thing happened, and let's say you're telling a story and someone says, well, that's not exactly what happened, is it? Well, anyway, that's why I remember it. And it doesn't really matter that much because the person's your friend or the person you love and you know the person and it happened something like that and the real point is just that we had a good time and this is my friend and so on. And there's almost that feeling, there's this real intimacy in bhakti where, well, it was something like that and that's more or less how it happened. And that's not the important point anyway, it's to get the person right. It's this person, and this is the way the person is, and this is why I love this person, and the details are a little flexible. And so it's a very interesting approach uh, to theism, but it's very much a part of these devotional movements. Yes? So what is it that makes those Well, from within the tradition, you could say that certain places, certain things really happen. Like if you go to Vrindavan, I remember Harvey Cox, who was a famous, uh, probably still there, a famous uh, professor of Christian studies at Harvard, and who wrote some best-selling books. And um, one time some friends of mine took him to Vrindavan, the place where Krishna grew up in India. And when he went there, he really felt that he got sort of zapped, or, I mean, he really had an experience. And he wrote an article about it where as soon as he went to Vrindavan, he really felt this powerful presence of Krishna. So, uh, there are certain holy places in India where people really powerfully feel it. I have to admit, just you know, a little revelation, I felt it in uh, bathing in the River Jordan. I'm not you know, promoting any biblical religion, but when I personally, I went to give some lectures in Israel several years ago, and I, I was going around the Sea of Galilee and visiting different places associated with the life of Jesus. I even bathed in the River Jordan, so I guess I'm sort of covered all the way, like, whatever turns out to be the truth. And so, but, but I, I have to admit that when I was going around the Sea of Galilee and, and swimming in the River Jordan, it, I really felt like I was on pilgrimage. 
And I wasn't intending to feel that way, and I've gone to many places in India, so, but it, it really felt kind of like a pilgrimage place. So my own experience is that, yeah, there is some special energy in these places. It doesn't mean that every pilgrimage place is the same or authentic, but most people that go to these places do feel something. And I'm sure there is an evolutionary genetic explanation for that, but then again, there may really be some spiritual energy there. It just depends on how you see it. Yes. But isn't that one the amazing position that the Paramahansa this group should be that it's really a physical spot that this Yes, but for example, certain physical, real physical spots may not actually be associated with the events that are claimed to have taken place there because even according to the sacred text, they didn't really happen there. But there are many places where people do feel something. And anyway, let, let's say like the Nisringa pilgrimage in South India. Let's say it didn't really, let's say from a believer's point of view, it didn't really happen on earth. But because people gather there for thousands of years and very devotedly pray and worship, that itself, you could say, creates a certain spiritual energy from the worshiper's point of view. Anyway, time's up. So, uh, see you Wednesday.